0: to professionally embarrassing your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me Malcolm. and me maddie First off, can we say a massive thank you to everyone who has rated, reviewed and followed this podcast since we launched episode one. We honestly thought we'd have a couple of followers and by followers we do mean our parents but we've had so much interest and such great feedback and we do massively appreciate it.
1: It does mean as well that we're extra motivated to create high quality content for you and we're really excited to be diving into some new issues for episode two. We obviously have seen um, the conjoined domestic abuse appeal judgment re-HN, which was handed down yesterday, but because we're recording so soon after, we're not actually able to discuss it in this episode, but we are going to let it sink in, think about what we want to say, and then do a bumper episode three all about it. But without any further ado, let's jump straight into the first section of the podcast this week. What did you see on daily? Marlva I think it's your turn to enlighten me.
0: The case that I have picked this week is the decision of Mr. Justice Peel in RE-DD, Inward Return Order 2021 EWHC 607. I won't cover everything in the judgment. There are a fair few issues in it, issues around habitual residence and jurisdiction, because I'm limited on time. So please do read the judgment in full listeners. It will be in the show notes as per usual. The child concerned is called DD who at the time of judgment was 16 years and seven months old. By way of background, the parents married in 2002, separated around 2009, 2010, and both now had new partners. There were protracted Children Act proceedings, which concluded in 2014, with an order confirming residence in favor of father and Didi to have contact with her mother. The contact was quite restricted overnight contact was on limited occasions and subject to supervision, and the restrictions were grounded in concerns at the time about mother's poor parenting, which was allegedly characterized by alcohol and drug misuse prostitution and neglect. Over time, the relationship between the parents improved and in 2019 they entered into a private written agreement whereby DD would spend more time with mother and her partner overnight unsupervised. In late 2019, mother who's a US citizen was considering relocating to the states, and in 2020 she did move to the states and started working there. In July 2020, she came back to spend time with DD, Dee Dee, and the judge notes, "I have no doubt that during 2019-2020, she discussed with DD Dee Dee the possibility of DD Dee Dee moving to the USA, encouraging her and perhaps laying to one side the impact on her relationship with father." By the end of July 2020, Dee Dee was expressing to mother, but not sharing with father, a willingness to move to the US. Without father knowing, mother arranged a plane ticket and an American passport for Dee Dee, and in August 2020, without warning father or getting his agreement, both of them knew that father wouldn't agree, Dee Dee flew to the US. Father learned about it when Dee Dee rang from the plane just before takeoff. Unsurprisingly, that led to the application before the court, effectively for DD to be returned from the U.S. After DD flew to the U.S., it completely spiralled out of control. On the 31st of August, father contacted mother's new employers, making accusations and sharing information about the previous proceedings, which he absolutely should not have done, and he accepted he overreacted and gave an undertaking, a promise to the court not to repeat that behaviour mother on her part applied for protective orders in both jurisdictions the judge said that this is precisely why mother should have gone about all of this in a completely different way he noted aiding dd in a clandestine departure from england to the us was damaging to the fragile nature of the family dynamics an unsettled father who had been her primary carer but putting aside the unfortunate way in which dd came to be in the us Dee Dee made it abundantly clear that she wants to stay in the U.S. with her mum. Dee Dee had been added as a party to the proceedings and a children's guardian was appointed, effectively her voice in the proceedings. And the children's guardian felt that given Dee Dee's age, her views should usually be determinative of the outcome of the proceedings. The guardian recommended that Dee Dee should stay in the U.S. and should spend time with her father. In the event, Father, a couple of months after making the application, decided not to pursue it, and the parties reached a settlement. Father basically took into account Dee's wishes and feelings as expressed via her guardian and appreciated that the ongoing proceedings would be damaging to her emotional well-being. The issue for the judge was whether he should exercise his discretion to make an inward return order requiring Dee to return from the US to England. The law here is trite uh, for practitioners, but I'll repeat it anyway. The judge notes that the exercise he is being asked to carry out is guided by the principle that the child's welfare is the court's paramount consideration. He refers to the welfare checklist under Section 1, subsection 3 of the Children Act, and one of the factors there is the child's wishes and feelings in light of their age and understanding. He also refers to Section 9, subsection 6 of the Children Act, which says, No court shall make a section eight order, which is to have effect for a period which will end after the child has reached the age of 16, unless it is satisfied that the circumstances of the case are exceptional. The judge effectively takes the view that in principle, the wishes of a child of nearly 17 years old should ordinarily be respected, and indeed their wishes should ordinarily be determinative of an application such as this, as was the view of the guardian as well absent any powerful justification, which points in the other way. The judge noted that in this case, I'm quite sure that mother encouraged Didi over a period of time measured in months to undertake a move. To that extent, Didi was of course influenced by mother. All children receive the influences of the major adult figures in their lives, but it doesn't mean that the decision to move and perhaps more importantly for my purposes, the decision to remain in the USA is not her own. Her will has not been suborned to mother. She was not unduly influenced by mother. She is expressing her own views authentically and consistently and in a nuanced, mature and articulate way. She bases them in large measure on her own lived experiences in the USA over the past six months. She is facing her future in a clear eyed way, acknowledging that she would return to the UK if things in the USA do not work out. She is aware of her mother's shortcomings and past issues but is confident that at her age she can deal with them if the need arises. She has quite simply decided that her future lies in the USA. Before I talk through why I picked this case, there is also a slightly boring technical legal point which I flag up for the interest of lawyers, which is about the nature of the application that was made by father and the procedure to be followed. The US is a signatory to the Hague Convention on the Civil Aspects of International Child Abduction, which I'll refer to as the Hague Convention. For non-lawyers, that is a multilateral treaty with the aim of protecting children from the harmful effects of wrongful removal across borders. Effectively, it's used to help secure the return of abducted children from certain countries. It didn't apply in this case because Article 4 of the Hague Convention states that the Convention ceases to apply when the child turns 16. That's the reason why father did not seek an order for DD's return under the Hague Convention. Instead, he made an application for wardship and return orders under the inherent jurisdiction. I'm going to be using a lot of jargon here, I will try and break it down. Wardship is when a child is made a ward of the court, which means that the High Court has supreme legal guardianship of a child. And the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court is effectively a catch-all provision when there isn't any existing law that covers the situation. The judge notes that father could and probably should have applied for a specific issue order under Section 8 of the Children Act to seek DD's return from the USA. A specific issue order is an order which is granted by the family court to do with a specific aspect of a child's upbringing. So what it says on the tin. The remedy that was being sought under either application, an application for wardship and return orders under the inherent jurisdiction and an application under the Children Act for a specific issue order Would have been the same. The remedy would have been returned to the jurisdiction. So why does it matter what kind of order was being applied for? The difference between making an application for an order under Section 8 of the Children Act and seeking an order under the inherent powers of the High Court is effectively judicial allocation. If you make an application for an order under Section 8 of the Children Act, the case will be allocated to an appropriate level of judge, taking into account its various complexities. If you apply to the High Court under its inherent powers, the commonplace practice of applying via the wardship jurisdiction, the judge notes, would mean the case is heard by a High Court judge, or at least a circuit judge with a Section 9 ticket, which means that they are sitting as a High Court judge. The judge referred to the judgment of Mr Justice Mostyn in the 2020 case of Rien, who in turn referred to the 2019 judgment of Lord Wilson in Rien ny and specifically drew out the following principle. The application for the return order may be framed either as a claim for a specific issue order under Section 8 of the Children Act 1989, or for an order pursuant to the inherent power of the High Court. However, the latter course should only be invoked exceptionally. Exceptionality may be demonstrated by reasons of urgency, complexity, or the need for particular judicial expertise. The judge wasn't criticising Father for having made the application that he did, father was acting in person so he wasn't represented and the judge notes that the relationship between the children act and the wardship slash inherent jurisdiction is confusing enough for lawyers let alone for lay parties who are representing themselves however the judge just wanted to flag up the practical consequences for making applications for inward orders under the inherent jurisdiction versus under the children act 1989 so now i've dealt with that technical Legal point, which I hope is helpful to practitioners, the reason I picked this case up is actually because I thought it's more helpful and interesting to non-lawyers than lawyers. I think for non-lawyers or members of the public, and I see this in my clients day in and day out, they take a bit of a balance sheet approach. So they'll say something like, oh, party A did a bad thing, they did something wrong, they should be punished for doing that bad thing, and I should have an appropriate remedy for the fact that they did that bad thing and it had negative consequences for me. Any non-lawyer who was listening to me recounting the facts of this case probably thought that the direction in which this was heading was Oh, well, mother took this child in secret to the USA without her primary carer's knowledge, surely the only fair and logical outcome is that Dee Dee is sent back to live with her dad. No. This is a good case to demonstrate that it's really not about the adults, it's not about the parents, for someone who's, who's new to family law and doesn't necessarily know how things work. The court is guided by the child's best interests, and that is its paramount consideration, the child's welfare. The court doesn't care about the tally sheet between the parents, what they have done to each other, whether that was wrong, how they have wronged each other. Looking at this child who, at her age, with her clearly expressed wishes and feelings, would suffer emotional harm if forced to do something that she doesn't want to do, i.e. return to the UK, Although mum went about it in a way which was entirely unacceptable and not in the way any parent should go about the relocation of the child, it's not really about that at all. And this is a pretty compact, discreet case to demonstrate that point for anyone who's new to family law, which is why I picked it.
1: Yeah, wow. I I think that's a really interesting case to have chosen, actually. I think for two reasons. The first is it's such a good example of how things move with the age of the children, because we know as practitioners that children's wishes and feelings do not become definitive until they're at least in their teens, if not sort of early teens, late teens, depending on the maturity of that child. But also that at some point you've got to stop thinking about this as a children act or a child welfare point, really, because if someone is 17, I mean, at 17, you can do all sorts of things. You can drive, um, you can go out, you can do whatever you want to do within reason. You're one year away from being a fully fledged voting adult. So it's very difficult for the court to put themselves in a position where they can say that their imposition of something that is against that child's will is somehow in their best interest. And that reasoning requires a huge amount of justification, doesn't it? I think also another thing that you raise, which I think is a really interesting point, is this idea of a remedy from the family court. And I think this is something that you encounter a lot when you think about why family law is different from other areas of the law, particularly things like civil law or sometimes even criminal law you don't always get a remedy, really. You get a resolution or you get a suggested approach. You very, very rarely get a one-sided, I have won everything and therefore I get all the remedies I want approach. Even in financial proceedings, um, it's often a tussle between the two parties. You'll get a bit of what you want and a bit of what they want and the court will come to a resolution. But very rarely do you come to the family courts with a clear remedy in mind and that is the remedy that you achieve. And I think it's quite an interesting way of this case, particularly separating family law from the broader idea of adversarial legal proceedings, because it doesn't work like that. You know, when you're looking at people's lives and this is a court that's tasked with making decisions about essentially an adult or nearly an adult who can really do as they wish and deciding what is best for them. And if you have a mature, nearly adult who is able to articulate their feelings and is saying, I don't want to move there is no court in the land who's going to say, well, I think it's better that you do or don't. So I think it it does demonstrate that tension in, in family law in terms of children's ages as they get older. The nature of proceedings changes entirely. I mean, the first thing you check whenever you get a brief is how old is the child? And this idea of what is the purpose of the family courts, because it's not to provide a remedy to one parent over the other. It's to come to a satisfactory resolution that favours the family as a unit and favours the child's welfare as paramount.
0: Yeah, I think what you say about arguing is not about winning and losing just kind of hits the nail on the head. And I know a lot of aspiring lawyers listen to this podcast as well, and I think that's something to bear in mind if you're interested in becoming a family lawyer, is our job is not advocacy in the typical sense. We don't win or lose. We don't go in all guns blazing the vast majority of the time seeking an outcome which will only benefit our client. The vast majority of the time we're negotiating orders that both parties can live with. No one's really happy about it, but it's just who is least unhappy about it. It's a very different kind of advocacy to what you see, for example, in the criminal courts. So it's just something to bear in mind because I think it's difficult to know what the job is like until you're in it. But our job is very much characterised by negotiation, by give and take, by compromise, by lots of hushed discussions outside court while we try and, and give a little and take a little. So bear that in mind for anyone who's interested in becoming a family lawyer.
1: Yeah, I entirely agree. There's a certain element of sort of behavioural conditioning to a point where you say you're not happy to do it, but will you do it? Because these are the consequences if you don't. And I think that's not necessarily the best way of achieving outcomes for families, but that's the method by which we tend to live and die as family lawyers so
0: tell me what you've got for me then
1: I have got a case that I've chosen not for any particular legal reason but the facts are insane so I thought you'd enjoy them so I've taken the story time brief a little bit far this week so this is a case of Mrs Justice Knowles who I think is brilliant she's a judge in the high court in London it's from January 2021 and it's called Resed brackets, care proceedings, colon, surrogacy, close brackets, and it is an accompanying judgment to a parental order made in surrogacy proceedings. Now, it concerns a child who is a little girl who's nearly 13 months old at the time the judgment came out, so now is about 15 months old. She was the product of an international surrogacy agreement which took place in Colombia. Her biological mother the surrogate sorry not biological mother her surrogate mother the gestational mother is called ef and she carried the child with some donor eggs and the biological father's sperm the biological father's called ab so we've got ab is the biological father we've got ef who is the gestational mother and we've got cd who is AB's partner and cohabitee, and they want to have the baby together. They're a couple who want to have the baby together. Now, the reason that proceedings, this matter even came before the court proceedings happened was because of CD, who is the biological father's partner. Now, CD is a man who experienced a very difficult childhood. He was in care as a child and was sexually abused by his own brother, when he was a child and then moved to the care system when he was 11 and remained in the care system till he was 18. And as a consequence of that, he went on to become a sexual offender. And in 1990, he was convicted of eight offences of indecent assault on a male aged under 14 years. I think that's something that you and I can pick up on at some point, this idea of kind of victim perpetrator narrative, which you see all the time in the family courts. But CD received a probation sentence for three years. He's not on the sex offenders register and he had um, court-prescribed treatment and therapy and through that therapy, he took huge leaps and bounds, realised that what he'd done had been abusive and indeed realised what had happened to him had also been abusive. So that was in 1990. Fast forward to 2021, AB and CD are in a very happy, settled relationship. They travelled to Colombia to undertake the surrogacy agreement with the donor eggs and AB's um, sperm. The surrogacy agreement is successful. The mother is pregnant with twins. Now, another complicating factor, very sadly, one of the twins who was born, the Z and Y, Y died at birth, and Z, who is the living child, spent the first few weeks of her life on a neonatal intensive care unit in Colombia. Now, A, B and C, D, parents, proposed parents, arrive in Colombia in January 2020, when the child is well enough to be discharged from hospital. She's not well enough at that stage, of the, the baby, to travel to Thailand, which is where AB and CD live, but they are British nationals. Are you following me so far? People taking notes? About. <laughs> so they're in Colombia, baby's born, but baby can't travel. So AB, who is the biological father, has to leave Colombia to go to Thailand to resume working. CD, the partner who's got the history, stays in Colombia, cares for the baby with the surrogate mother for a period of time. During that period of time, COVID takes hold. And CD and the baby are stranded in Colombia. They can't leave because of COVID. They can't enter Thailand because of COVID. So they don't know what to do. Eventually, they they realise they can get a flight from Colombia to the UK cd and the baby now bear in mind that cd is not no biological relation to the baby but the surrogacy agreement's been recognized in colombia so they have parental responsibility in colombia for the baby so they fly back cd and Z, babies in thailand they fly back to the uk and then there's a point at which they re-enter the uk where things get a little bit tricky and this is where essentially what is said is that there's a number of documents and paperwork required for CD to enter the UK with the baby because obviously he's not biologically related to the baby. So all these documents are given, signed consents by the father and the surrogate mother, et cetera, et cetera. CD arrives in the UK with the baby at an unnamed airport. And what force say is that he tried to conceal the baby in his jacket so he wasn't open about the fact he had a baby with him. And he didn't appear to have the appropriate documents for her. So force stop him and ask him if he has any convictions in relation to children. He says he does, because of the 1990 stuff that had happened. So that then triggers a huge waterfall of proceedings by which the local authority are notified of CD and Z's arrival in the UK, and the social services descend, and the baby is taken into police protective custody. So it's all gone Absolutely peak on at this point. The biological father is happily in Thailand, doesn't know any of this has happened. The biological father's partner, CD, who is the surrogate father, is in the UK with the baby, and the local authority are issuing proceedings as against them because of these historical offences against children. Eventually, they work out what's happened, but following contact with the local authority, the biological father who's in Thailand agrees to accommodate the child under Section 20. So there's no need for any orders to be made. They agree that the baby should be accommodated under Section 20 until such time as things can be sorted out. For anyone who doesn't know what Section 20 is, it's consensual accommodation by the local authority. So you don't need an order. The parents just agree that the baby should be taken um, into local authority accommodation for the time being. So we're left in this position where you've got a local authority who are concerned about CD's convictions and the circumstances which have led to Zed coming to the UK, and they issue care proceedings in May of 2020. The proceedings are immediately transferred to the High Court, and the High Court order a psychological assessment of both fathers, AB and CD, and medical records of CD and previous convictions stuff. The clinical psychologist undertakes the assessment and finds that both of the men are delightful, have an enormous amount of commitment to this baby. She finds them very open. She commented that CD in particular, despite this um, past, had a very good level of insight into his own history and that his risk of abusing Zed or any other child was extremely low. They reported that both fathers had a very respectful, supportive and loving relationship and that neither of them were a risk to the child. So. We're still in proceedings. The child's still accommodated under Section 20. There's been no specific threshold pled because of the Section 20 accommodation. The local authority complete a parenting assessment. That parenting assessment is very positive and recommends that the baby is returned immediately to the care of her fathers. There is then a hearing in October 2020. So this has now been going on for some five months. The local authority then say at the hearing in October, we want to withdraw. There's no issues here. We can't see any reason why this baby can't go back to the care of her parents and she needs to go back to Thailand where the parents live and live with her fathers fine now for any non-lawyers listening you can't just withdraw proceedings you need an order or you need consent of the court to withdraw care proceedings if you're a local authority and that is why the matter came before the court because the local authority had to make an application for withdrawal because previously they hadn't needed to because the baby was accommodated under section 20. So. The court finds the following, I am satisfied, as is the local authority, that CD did not attempt to conceal the baby on his arrival in the United Kingdom. He was traveling on a humanitarian flight authorized by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the UK border agency and was clearly carrying a baby and a baby seat. He volunteered Zed's passport. It is difficult in those circumstances to envisage how it could possibly have been thought that he might have attempted to conceal Zed. The relevant inquiries with the surrogacy agency in Colombia were undertaken, and it was held that the surrogacy was legitimate in Colombia, and the family court in Colombia had made an order confirming that the surrogate mother no longer had parental responsibility for the baby and that parental responsibility was with the fathers. Now, the judge goes on to say that the local authority has to be credited for signalling at the earliest possible opportunity that it wished to withdraw the application for the public law order. So it was right that they did this, but it took obviously the psychological assessment and the parenting assessment for them to make an application to withdraw. And then what the court says about applications to withdraw, which I think is an interesting point to make because it was recently clarified in a case called GC and a local authority, which was in 2020. And this case reaffirms the dictum in, in GC, which basically says, I'll, I'll read from this case. Um, it's a paragraph 27. The local authority is required to seek the court's permission to withdraw the application for a care order pursuant to Rule 29.42 of the Family Proceedings Rules 2010. The case law in relation to such applications has recently been considered by the Court of Appeal in the case of GC and a local authority 2020. The Court of Appeal reviewed the relevant first instance authorities in its judgment and endorsed the approach summarised as follows at paragraphs 19 and 20 of its judgments. This is from GC. As identified by Headley in the Redbridge case, applications to withdrawal care proceedings will fall into two categories. In the first, the local authority will be unable to satisfy the threshold criteria that is risk of suffering or has suffered significant harm on a social 31. In such cases, the application must succeed. But for cases to fall into the first category, the inability to satisfy the criteria must be obvious. That's the first category of withdrawals that the local authority can apply for. The second category, there will be cases where, on the evidence, it's possible for the local authority to satisfy the threshold criteria. In those circumstances, an application to withdraw the proceedings must be determined by considering, firstly, whether withdrawal of the care proceedings will promote or conflict with the welfare of the child concerned, and secondly, the overriding objective under the family procedure rules. Therefore, the judge goes on to say, the first task of the court is to consider first whether the threshold criteria is satisfied, and if it is not, then permission to withdraw, of course, must succeed. All parties in this case supported the local authorities' application. There is no evidence that the child had suffered significant harm. This case was really essentially about the likelihood of any harm flowing from the historic convictions of CD, who was going to be one of the fathers of the baby. Essentially, what the court goes on to find is that I'm satisfied that this case falls into the first of the two categories identified in GC of withdrawal applications, that this is where the local authority is unable to satisfy the threshold criteria for the making of a public law order. This was an entirely different case to GC. That case concerned a child who'd sustained injuries and where the child judge had acceded to an application to withdraw the proceedings at an interlocutory stage. However, this case, I grant the local authority permission to withdraw its application for public law orders because the threshold criteria clearly cannot be made out and could not be satisfied. So essentially, this is a lesson in what happens when things go a little bit wrong. Now, I think it's understandable to say, and I think The Guardian rightly points out in this case, that the local authority had a duty to investigate the historic convictions of CD. And I think we've all seen it in cases where one party has historic convictions against children, particularly sexual offences against children, And that does trigger a significant level of safeguarding, rightly so. But in this case, it's quite clear that that is not necessarily a barrier to a sort of happy ending. The court was very clear in this case that the particular father concerned, C. D., had undergone a huge amount of work to understand the basis upon which he had committed those offences and was very unlikely to recommit those offences. And in fact, A. B., who was the biological father living in Thailand, there were no concerns about at all. And so. In this case, because the child had been accommodated under section 20, there has never been any determination by the court, even on an interim basis under section 38, as to whether the threshold criteria was made out. So it took until the local authority applied to withdraw for there to be a determination as the threshold and the court found the threshold was not made out. So I thought that was quite an interesting case not only in terms of when can local authorities withdraw and when is threshold made out but also just factually is one of those cases that really indicates the issues first of all with international surrogacy because the court does have a sister judgment to this one in the same case of a parental order being made I can't find it but if I do find it I'll I'll let you know but firstly in terms of parental orders being made accompanying that the difficulties with international surrogacy when you come into the country with a child who technically or legally don't have parental responsibility for in this country, but secondly, how long it can take before a local authority realises that they don't have threshold criteria and shouldn't have issued proceedings. Um, and if you're a parent who's keen to work with the local authority and keen to be open and honest and do whatever you're told to do, then it might take months for you to realise that the local authority could not prove their case in the first instance. So an interesting one what do you think? Have you managed to follow that? Sorry.
0: I have followed it. I have so many questions. What was, how much time elapsed between the child being accommodated in foster care and being returned to the parents and these proceedings concluding?
1: Uh, It appears about, about nine months.
0: That's horrific. I do want, because I, I don't criticize the local authority for wanting to Wait for the outcome of the parenting assessment, wait for the outcome of the psychological assessment before taking a view. I do wonder how long it took them to get that psychological assessment back and how long it took them to get the parenting assessment back. It is a long-standing issue and I've written on it quite regularly that we are struggling to get experts to report in a timely manner in the family courts and I wonder if it took a while for the psychologist to come back and that constituted delay which was obviously affecting the the ability of this child to be rehabilitated to her parents so I do wonder how long it took for that psychological assessment to come back and I I wonder how long it took for the parenting assessment to come back because I imagine the parenting assessment would have waited the outcome of the psychological assessment before making any recommendation so there would have been that knock-on delay but by the sounds of it it could have been resolved much faster but if the local authority was waiting for a number of things to be in place before it could be confident that it would be safe for this child to return to her parents and for the proceedings to conclude which is really unfortunate. How old is this child now? I'm sure you did tell me.
1: She was 13 months in January so she's 15 months old now but I, I would add actually that this is one of the things I feel really passionately about in terms of regulation of children and parenting who are not born as a result of natural conception. So when you have a family such as this two men who want to have a baby and they want to have a baby that's biologically theirs then they have to go through the process of artificial reproductive technology be that with a surrogate or whatever it means they use. And those methods are undoubtedly more scrutinized particularly in terms of welfare than they would be if for example this man A B had had a baby naturally with a woman which didn't involve the use of a surrogate or didn't involve the use of legal means to obtain parental responsibility. If they just had a baby and that woman had had historic convictions relating to her children, no one would ever have known. They would have been able to just raise that baby however they wanted to. There would have been no question about welfare unless and until something further happened. So I think it's, it's a really good demonstrative case of what I think is a real disconnect between welfare as looked at when you're using artificial reproductive technology, surrogacy or anything, because the courts are already involved and therefore it's up to the courts to make a welfare consideration, as opposed to natural parenting, natural conception, and I say natural biologically, I don't mean it in any other way than that, um, that doesn't involve the use of technology is what I should say, that doesn't require any scrutiny. There is no scrutiny about when and who can have children, rightly so, when and who can have children, unless you're using reproductive technology or surrogacy. And then there's a huge amount of scrutiny and it results in cases like this where children are separated from their parents, perhaps for a very long period of time. So I think it does really demonstrate that disconnect between what are we doing really to equalize non-traditional families and the use of non-traditional methods of creation. What are we doing to equalize those in the face of natural, and I say natural, quotation marks, conception. 'Cause it wouldn't have happened if they'd had it had the baby between the two of them, would it? There would have been no state intervention at all.
0: Well, I don't know about that. I think if if there had been if it wasn't a same sex relationship and if there had been one party who had, had historic convictions for child sex offences, then I think in any event the local authority would have at least had them on their radar um or would have invested well, under a sin. You say that,
1: but but this in this case, C D wasn't on the sex offenders register, so they wouldn't have known. I mean, I, I mean, I've I've not had a direct experience of it, but I'm sure there are cases where people have had, who've had historic sexual offence, have gone on to have children with no concerns at all. I, d- I mean, maybe you're right, but um, it's it's an interesting indication of that dichotomy, I think. And also, I'm very grateful. Malvika's actually, just as we've been talking, sent me the parental order judgment, which is the sister judgment to these public law proceedings. And I'll just read out the final paragraph, obviously the parental order in favour of A, B and C, D was made and I think it's quite a nice little summary of where we are. So the judge says at the end of the parental order judgment, which is where you see parental order child's home 2021, the circumstances that arose in this case are highly unusual. I conclude by paying tribute to A, B and C, D, they have conducted themselves with dignity and patience throughout their dealings with the local authority in the court. Both have been subjected to intense scrutiny and searching assessment. That process has vindicated them as parents for Zed and put paid to any lingering doubts about their suitability. I met with them and saw Zed with them. Zed is a delightful child who's relaxed and happy with both of them. She has brought great joy to their lives and they clearly adore her. I've no doubt they will do all in their power to give her a happy and secure childhood. So it's got a happy ending, which is nice. And you don't really see that in public law. So congratulations to A.B. and C.D.
0: Right, Maddie, I have a new segment for you. Go on. So I was reading a tweet actually by jack harrison in court who was involved in your surrogacy case he tweeted that oh why i knew where it was so he tweeted uh, a while ago saying a new low for family court acronym confusion this morning in sunny blackpool the local authority announced that a case is to be reallocated to the SOC team but nobody including the social worker and highly experienced local judge knows what on earth it stands for so that gave me an idea. And I've decided that I'm going to gather a whole, a whole long list of acronyms, some of them which will be very obvious, absolutely completely easy for you to work out. You'll know the answer straight away. Some of them perhaps a bit trickier. I mean, do you know what SOC stands for? I certainly didn't. I've
1: got no idea, I'm afraid. What is it?
0: I'm not sure. I think he tweeted <laughs> about it I think it's supporting our children or something.
1: Jack, let us know right into the show let us know okay so you want me to do acronyms all right there's about 1500 in family door so we'll have to see how we get on with this
0: some of them are really easy like i said you'll know them straight away and then i've tried to throw in the odd curveball and see how you how you fare right easy ones to start off with gal g-a-l
1: guardian ad litem
0: well done sin c-i-n
1: child in need
0: ICPC.
1: Uh I don't know, International Centre for the Protection of Children.
0: That's a bold, bold suggestion. No, it's nothing that exciting. It's in, it's Initial Child Protection Conference.
1: Oh right, yeah, of course it is. Sorry.
0: For HEDRA Use it all the time. Do you know what it stands for?
1: It stands for First Hearing Dispute Resolution Appointment.
0: Well done. FGC.
1: Family Group Conference. EDC. EDT.
0: Shall I use it in a sentence? Yeah. An issue arose overnight, and the parents couldn't contact the allocated social worker, so they contacted the EDT team. I'm not actually sure that made it any easier, but there you go. Emergency
1: something team?
0: Yep. Emergency duty team. Oh, duty, of course. Right. CIC. C-I-C. It's used all the time locally but I had no idea until I moved to Birmingham because we used a different term for it when I was practicing in London.
1: Oh CIC oh is it is it the CAFCAS thing contact intervention something?
0: No we're thinking of CCI.
1: I am what is it?
0: Child in care which you probably know is lack.
1: Lack yeah that's lack sorry Birmingham you're wrong there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> as soon as I moved to Birmingham and people were telling me well of course that could be reviewed in the kick process and I had absolutely no idea what they were talking about but there we go NIAS
1: oh National Youth Advocacy Service
0: yep and the last one Cascas.
1: oh Child and Family Court Advisory Service
0: mm, almost Child and Family Court Advisory and Support Services oh come on <laughs> but was, mine
1: still spells kafkas
0: that was really impressive impressive I wouldn't have even gotten that far with kafkas and I don't think I would have known some of the others unless I looked it up right away anyway no, there
1: are a few I see especially yeah social services have a lot of different ones and regional ones as well that are difficult
0: I can't remember what the SOC team stands for Jack I think it's supporting our children but let us know and if you can yeah. look any other inventive acronyms that we won't have come across please do tweet them to us and let's see if we can figure them out we're always willing to learn right so
1: next segment is tweet of the week or actually tweet of the fortnight need to change the name but uh tweet of the fortnight Malvika
0: I feel like it's become a fixture now we can't change it to tweet of the fortnight
1: yeah tweet of the week it's just called tweet of the week
0: mine's not actually a tweet mine's a linkedin post does that count
1: yeah I'll allow it
0: It's a LinkedIn post by Elizabeth Rimmer, who's the CEO of Lawcare, lovely lady, hi Liz, Um, I think you might listen to this podcast, I don't know, I think Lawcare tweeted us, I'm not sure. Anyway, her LinkedIn post shared this article about a junior lawyer who was in a panic for making a mistake because she'd sent an email with medical documents to the wrong person. And then she had misled the intended recipient about what had happened to it. And she got slapped with, I think it was a six month suspension and quite a hefty fine. So Liz wrote, we've all done things like this. Early in my charity career, I transferred £50,000 to an organisation instead of £5,000. Brackets, we got it back. But it took nearly a year. The organisation was outside the UK. Anna taught me a lesson. I always say to anyone I work with, if you make a mistake or something goes wrong, tell me. We can try and sort it. I had told my boss about the 50k as soon as I realized. I still remember the conversation. I did feel sick, but he was great about it. His response was, let's get it fixed, and that has stayed with me for the rest of my career. I stayed in that job for another nine years. I should thank him. I felt sick even reading <laughs> that, <laughs> that. Yeah that status that makes me shake
1: I'm physically shaking
0: (laughs) but yeah why is that why are we physically shaking reading something like that it was clearly an honest mistake and it's not the end of the world it can be rectified but Liz was referring to not only that case of someone called Victoria Whelan who I assume is is not a relation Maddie no
1: relation no I can assure my clients of that no relation
0: And that article said, Victoria Whelan described being blinded by panic after discovering she'd sent medical documents to the wrong address and then trying to mislead the intended recipient about what had happened. So she sent an email, mistakenly addressed it to someone unconnected to the matter. And then when the intended recipient contacted her to ask where the bundle was, she said, oh, it's been blocked by a firewall because of the size of the attachment. She was effectively trying to play for time while she tried to recall The mistakenly addressed email and to get that recipient to delete it. But I think the point that Liz is making is why was she blinded by panic because Mm. of a of a data protection issue, which we will come across day in day out when we're sending documents to all sorts of parties, accidentally CCing in someone that we shouldn't have CC'd in. And she had also referred, I think, the previous day to the case of Claire Matthews, which was something I wrote about quite extensively on my blog, and I'll link it in the show notes and. Claire was struck off the role. She was a solicitor, junior solicitor, after she had left confidential documents on a train and then told her firm Mm. that they were at home. And eventually she did fess up to it, but she was struck off for that. And the SRA recently allowed her appeal and the original decision was quashed and is now being reheard by the solicitor's disciplinary tribunal. But there's this recurring pattern of very junior lawyers in particular, just completely panicking about something that at the end of the day is not a big deal. We are going to make these mistakes. But why is it that certainly women like Claire and Victoria react to the way they did? And the fact that we felt sick even reading what Liz wrote about sending mm. £50,000, we can probably empathise with that degree of panic. Why do you think that people like us and people like them overreact to that extent?
1: I'll tell you what I think about this. And it actually links in with my tweet of the week as well, which I know you know it does. But
0: I think
1: that there is such an emphasis at right and rightly can i just say very clearly that i think it's right to place an emphasis above almost all else on honesty at the bar and that's because and as a solicitor and that's because so much of what we do relies on honesty firstly because we're officers of the court and we draft orders all the time we give facts to the court all the time, updates and things that the court hasn't heard specific evidence on. We are vectors of information. So it's incredibly important for us to be as open and honest and truthful as is humanly possible. And I say humanly because obviously that means there are human errors involved in that. If you make a mistake, then you make a mistake. And we've all done it, sent emails to the wrong people, CCD in the wrong person, sent a position statement to the wrong judge or whatever it might be. And that's fine. But you just have it's about how you deal with it. And I think the problem and I think what we're both in agreement with, the problem is that we are creating a culture whereby junior barristers and lawyers are so scared about the impact of those mistakes that they lie about them because you only lie. Well, you lie for a number of reasons, as we know, from the Lucas direction, panic, fear, to cover up something because you don't know what else to do because you're ashamed because you're guilty whatever there are lots of reasons to lie but it's the lying that's the problem it's not the mistake and i think we need to as a profession really have more focus especially on the bar course because if you, i don't know if you remember your ethics exam in the bar course but oh my god never was anything more stressful than those ethics classes and i always got it wrong my intuition was always wrong and i thought i was like an incredibly unethical person because of that But there has to be more emphasis on the fact that especially now in this remote world, you know, courtrooms and computers, mistakes are going to happen. You're going to send the wrong thing to someone. You're going to slip your finger and email the wrong person. You're going to forget to do something by a deadline. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. But it's so much better to fess up to it straight away and have it be dealt with rather than lie about it. And I think the temptation is, well, no one will find out. It's fine. I can buy myself 10 minutes and sort it all out. No one will ever know that temptation has to be fought. And I don't know what it is about the law particularly. In fact, I do know what it is. It's because of the serious nature of what we do, right? And the consequences on people's lives. But that intuition to try and cover it up has to be stopped. And I think that's not to judge anyone who's done it and not to judge anyone who will do it in the future and not to judge anyone who feels that way. We've all felt that way, but it's driving home the narrative that like bad things are gonna happen. It's how you deal with them rather than the fact that they've happened. And I don't know, I I mean, I would hope that as we get into a more kind of diverse, mature, self-reflective bar, that we're able to fix these issues. But you're right, the cases that we talk about, me and Malveh talk about this a lot, but like the cases that we've looked at are women, they're junior, they're in big, big firms, or they're in big, big chambers, and they're terrified of the reaction. And that is not unconnected, the fact that they are junior women, to the fact that this has happened. And I think we need to examine the way that we treat junior members at the bar anyway, but particularly in relation to mistake making. Everyone does it. Everyone has a case that they learned something from because they made a mistake or they didn't do something on time or they did something that they shouldn't have done. You don't do it again, but you've got to learn the lesson and it will happen. And I don't know what training or I think the bar council in terms of the BPTC programs has a lot to answer for in relation to this, but we're seeing it a lot and it's got to stop. It's
0: got to stop. Yeah, I completely agree with what you said about our ethics courses. I I was very much the same as you. I think I'm a very morally driven person. I think I have a pretty good gut instinct. And I think I have pretty good intuition. But the way the ethics courses are framed are so prescriptive. And so these are the points that you have to hit. And these are the core duties that you have to address in order to get the marks in the exam, that it completely takes away any sense of common sense. It takes away How we should intuitively approach ethical dilemmas. And I think that, if anything, I left the ethics course with less common sense than when I went into the ethics course. And I became terrified of breaching a minor rule, which might end up with me getting struck off, that I was losing a sense of let's look at this holistically, let's see what the options are, and let's see how the various interests balance against each other. And I do think that the BBTC has something uh, to answer for on, on that level. And I thought the point you made about these being junior women is interesting, and I agree with it entirely. Both of them are solicitors. Interestingly, if anything, I would have thought that barristers are particularly susceptible to falling into something like this because they don't have a team. They don't have a network. They are operating on their own. And I can assure you that feeling blind panic when you don't have a boss, don't have a supervisor, don't have a manager to talk you through something. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. So I actually wonder whether we are going to see more cases like this in respect of the junior bar because we don't have any kind of support network in place to help us navigate dilemmas like that.
1: Yeah, I think I think you can see them. If you know where to look, you'll find them. It's not a rare thing. This leads us quite nicely into my tweet of the week, which is very, very similar, but it's from at Crime Girl, who I think we all know on Twitter, shout out to you. It's from the 24th of March and it says there's trainee solicitor forges signature of qualified colleague on land transfer form to progress a conveyance file equals struck off. Barrister sexually assaults very junior young barrister on night out five times equals three months suspension. Now, I'm not saying the first one's okay, it's not okay. Don't forge signatures ever, it's dishonest, don't do it. But also, what kind of a system are we advocating when you get the same, uh, no, in fact, you get a lighter sentence for sexually assaulting a young barrister. You get a three month suspension from your job, but for a dishonesty crime, which again, it's not crime, but a dishonesty infraction. Again, I don't think it's the right thing to have done. She shouldn't have done it, but she got struck off. I mean. What? How? How can this possibly be justifiable? I know that the BSB and the Bar Council are looking into it, but it is just there is something to be said for a profession which values honesty and integrity above physical integrity and sexual safety. There is something to be said for that. And I think that needs to be really driven home and these conversations need to carry on because we as women, particularly as junior women, both of us are less than five years cool, not necessarily comfortable advocating or living or sitting with a profession that does not take very very firm action against proven allegations of sexual assault when you're in a professional environment it's terrifying no one would want it to happen to us I wouldn't wouldn't wish it on anyone and it it's so destabilizing it can ruin your entire career let alone your psychology profile and all sorts of things in the future your relationships and your relationship with yourself It's really damaging. And I think professionally we can and should do so much more to address it. And we know it happens all the time. Anecdotally, we know it happens all the time. And just in terms of the published figures, we know it happens all the time. So what the hell is going on? Someone do something about this. Three month suspension is an absolute joke. It's insulting. It shouldn't have happened.
0: And this isn't an isolated case. We've seen a spate of judgments coming out. It's a pattern and it's something that we need to be reading out. And what does it say? about our profession as a whole to those who want to enter it because if I were a young woman looking at these tweets like crime girl I'd be thinking is this somewhere I want to be is this somewhere where I feel protected where my regulatory body will protect me because on the face of it it doesn't seem that it would you get a slap on the wrist for violating someone's personal integrity so it's not a good day to be proud of the bar. It's not a good day to be proud of our barristers. I think that's a real shame because it's a profession that has the potential to be so great and thrives from the participation of women and is made up of women who make it great. And we are more than likely deterring wonderful women from joining because of issues like this.
1: And we know that we have the capacity to hold people to account. We know from the cases we've just talked about that the regulatory authorities have the capacity to hold people to account for seemingly minor infractions. We know they can do that. We know that they will do that if they want to, and if they need to, they'll do it. We know we have the systems in place to protect against dishonesty, rightly so, again, rightly so. But to not have the same systems used for protection of sexual safety and protection of women, particularly, or anyone who identifies as a woman or anyone who identifies as a minority is outrageous because we know you can do it and you're choosing not to. And how does that make all barristers and potential barristers and students and senior members of the bar who are trying to change this? How does that make them feel? It makes them feel invalidated and it makes them feel like their complaints are not worth the time of the regulated authorities. But leaving papers on a train is is. And and that's not, I I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think the the bar needs to look a bit deeper, needs to do a bit of self-awareness training and uh, look into what can be done to address this because in my view, it's, it's just entirely unacceptable.
0: And I don't think it's a job just for the regulatory authorities as well. The chambers who are housing these barristers, do they have robust enough policies in place to review whether or not they should be a member of chambers? Is that someone that they want operating under their brand? people need to be taking this seriously. They can't keep rushing it under the carpet. There was a very good Twitter account, Maddie. I don't know if you've seen it called Under Behind the Gown or Under the Gown?
1: Yeah, I saw that.
0: I don't know how active that is anymore, but that gave us an indication of what's happening behind the scenes. And Maddie's completely right that when this does happen to young women in particular, No one's going to say anything about it because no one wants to cause trouble. No one wants to be seen as a troublemaker. If they escalated to someone, an authority could come back and bite them. So it's something that is a structural endemic issue that needs to be yanked out at the roots.
1: Root to stem. Root to stem. Um, So that's that's that on that. What have you been reading this week?
0: Very little. I've been reading my cases through the tears flowing from my eyes of exhaustion. But apart from that, I did catch up on the last oral evidence session to the Commission on Legal Aid. For anyone who doesn't know about this, the APBG on Legal Aid has organised a Commission on the Sustainability of Legal Aid where they held several oral evidence sessions around various themes and called various practitioners to come and give oral evidence. I gave oral evidence myself at the end of last year in the family legal aid session, and the last session just took place and it was. I think it was the experiences of junior lawyers was the theme there is a recording online which we'll put in the show notes and there is also a transcript quite helpfully I would say the transcript is not a verbatim transcript so if you really want to get a good flavor of what's going on just watch the recording directly and I wanted to pick up in particular on Aksa Hussein's evidence I don't know if you know Aksa she is now Congratulations AXA, she's now the newest tenant at number five chambers as of yesterday or a couple of days ago, so well done AXA, but she gave evidence to uh, Natalie Bennett, James Daly, MP, Baroness Kennedy. And I want to read this bit out because I think it's really powerful. I'd like to give some examples of my day-to-day work. In the majority of legal aid matters, papers are received the night before, long nights, and it's stressful. One example, I was in court a few days ago and my client had 15 charges against her. Prison, definitely an option. I spent two and a half hours prepping, two and a half hours travelling, a 45-minute conference as it was a complex case, co-defendant also, in court for six hours in total with first appearance concluded, travelled home two and a half hours and then spent 40 minutes sorting my notes and sent to my solicitor. I was paid £50 plus VAT for all of that work because it's a fixed fee irrespective of the complexity of the work and then she gave another example in a magistrate's case i was sent the other week i got the papers at 3 p.m worked until 7 got in touch with the prosecution who then sent me a notice of discontinuance the trial didn't go ahead and i was paid nothing for the work if it had gone ahead i would have been paid 75 pounds for the half day work so appalling and really really powerful evidence from the coalface from junior practitioners about what things are really like in criminal legal aid. And this is a bit peculiar, Maddie. And uh, this is why I think people should watch the recording rather than the transcript because the transcript doesn't quite pick up how peculiar this is. But there's a bit of an interaction between AXA and James Daly MP, she finishes a section of her evidence and goes, I do want to encourage people to pursue a career at the criminal bar, but they need to do it with their eyes open. She says, you know, there's a massive brain drain on the legal aid sector she says that it's simply not sustainable to work in legal aid and it's effectively pro bono so she says all of this and then james Daly comes back and says i was a solicitor for 16 years and have instructed many junior barristers over that time your evidence for a non-lawyer listening in they would probably get the wrong impression that solicitors are deciding your pay I've never instructed anyone to work for £50 ever. I'm going to interject there and say, AXA doesn't say that solicitors ever fixed her fee at £50. Yeah, what's,
1: what's he on about?
0: I don't understand. She just said there is a fixed fee of £50. And then he says, there is a challenge at the criminal bar when you're a junior barrister, but the work does come at the end of your pupillage and your career does take off. You are painting a picture of unmitigated doom that is not representative, which I thought was utterly bizarre. What? But, but don't worry, AXA didn't even need to respond. We don't even need to respond because our queen, Baroness Kennedy, responded for us. <laughs> and she said, I have to say, James, and, it, and the transcript doesn't quite pick up everything that she said. I have to say, James, you've really not kept in touch with the cuts over recent years. Legal aid has been obliterated for this type of work. And AXA, I'm saddened to hear that someone as talented as you is having to deal with this in the way you are. So I thought that was quite funny weird drama going on in the oral evidence session we'll link that in the show notes but that's what I was watching and shout out to Baroness Kennedy who remains a legend.
1: Wow thank you Axel for that that's incredible honestly so congratulations on your tenancy of course I think we could do a whole episode about this I'm sure we will do a whole episode about this at some point both Malvika and I are legal aid practitioners I could talk about it till the cows come home the picture is slightly better at the family bar than the criminal bar so I won't for a moment pretend that we know exactly what our criminal brothers in arms are going through but it is outrageous and it's unsustainable and um, it's entirely right to call it a brain drain that's exactly what it is talented people do not stick around they do not do legal aid work forever they do it when they're junior because that's what they need to do and then they move on and that's why it's sustained on the shoulders of junior practitioners and it shouldn't be and that leads to all the kind of issues that we've seen in RHN by the way according to the submissions made by the excellent professor jarl hunter qc so it all links back into the problems with the family bar, it all links back into the problems with the criminal bar. I'm sure we could talk about it for ages, but I'm I'm noticing that we have been talking for quite some time now. I don't have a particular book recommendation/slash podcast recommendation this week, but I am attending the Gresham lecture on diversity at the bar tomorrow. It's actually called Diversity in the Legal Profession. Both Leslie Thomas QC and Professor Joe delahunty QC will be talking. It is a one hour lecture about what the bar has done in recent years to combat diversity. I mean, I think it would be very easy to say a talk on diversity in the legal profession, spoiler alert, there is none. That would be quite a short talk. But what it is doing is looking at how the bar is overcoming those challenges, how the bar is trying to be better, where will we be in five years, where will we be in 10 years, what will the bar look like? So for anyone who's a student or wants to be a barrister or even current junior and senior barristers, I'd really implore you to attend that lecture as well. It's an absolute privilege to hear both of them talk on any topic, they're both fantastic, but This particularly is something that I know is very close to mine and Malvika's hearts in relation to the lack of diversity and inclusion at the bar. And if you want a good and solid and quality analysis of where the bar is heading, then I would recommend that you tune into that. I will be there, although I did just have a case come in for tomorrow at four. So hopefully I'll be there, but I would really recommend that. And I will hopefully be able to tell you all about it in next week's episode. Well, on that note, happy International Trans Visibility Day. Trans Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter always join us next week for a deep dive into VHN. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Thanks a lot. Bye.